you just to back Keith up before I get into um, our text for this morning. I remember in college, I had the opportunity to, to tutor uh, in addition to my studies, because I'm a tra- whatever you want to call traditional learner, like I do well in classrooms. That's not everybody's learning style, but it was mine. Uh, so I was able to tutor one of my classmates, and he needed tutoring in, in English. Uh, at least that's what the college said, because he had failed the class twice and didn't want to fail it a third time. And he told me, no, I've been through this one two times. I'm not worried about English. I already know everything. <laughs> Even if he hadn't learned it, he at least knew it was on the quizzes. Uh, but he's like, but I really need tutor- tutoring in an uh, hour Greek class. So it's kind of like our Greek class. Yeah. So in the class that we're in together, like, oh, you want me to help you learn what I'm learning that same day? Like, uh, well, we'll see what we can do. And I never had a better learning experience than when I had to teach it that day. So you want to know God better, know his word, you can learn by teaching, okay? So that's just, that's just backing up the prayer focus on that. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she... She is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, that's a day's wages, $100, so per denarii maybe, maybe a little bit more. And the other 50. When they could not pay, He canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. I was reminded of this account of Jesus in Luke 7 as I studied our passage in Colossians this week. For both speak of our sin as an unpayable debt. And both point to merciful, undeserved forgiveness of our sin debt. We're in Colossians again this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I hope that you do. Colossians chapter 2 will be in verses 13 to 15. I'm going to back up a little bit to give the the context of this. Colossians chapter 2. I'll start in verse 6. We're focusing on verses 13 to 15. This is the hinge point of the letter, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. 
In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Last week, we gloried with Paul in our union with Christ by faith. His death is our death. His burial is our burial. His resurrection is our resurrection. And in today's text, Paul's Paul's attention remains on the death of Christ on the cross and the miraculous deliverance, the unimaginable gift, and the glorious triumph that were accomplished at the cross. Gracious Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, shine the light of your word on us that we may glory in the cross of Jesus Christ and the amazing benefits that you have freely given to us in him. Brothers and sisters, because of the cross, the dead are resurrected, the debtors are forgiven, the demons are defeated. You don't have to write it down yet, that's just the the flyover, we'll get to each one. First, because of the cross, there has been a miraculous deliverance. The dead are resurrected. Because of the cross, the dead are resurrected. It hasn't happened in a while, but I used to have these weird, half-awake dreams where I was convinced that I was awake and thinking clearly, but I very obviously was not. On the occasions when I would wake Leanne up in this state, I would very vehemently and adamantly insist to her that I was not dreaming. I was awake, and it was real. Uh, She would kindly and calmly stifle her laughter as she asked me what had happened, probably excited to have a funny story to share the next morning or the next time we had someone over for dinner. (laughs) But we have a good time with that. She wasn't concerned, somehow, about the mountains of printer paper cascading out of the back of my cargo van in the parking garage. Why? I was concerned, but she was not, because she knew that I had been sleeping. She knew it was just a dream. I was convinced that I was awake and that that it was real, but I was wrong. She truly knew the state that I was in. Sleeping, dreaming. What state does the Bible tell you that you were in? You were dead in your trespasses. No, I wasn't. No, I'm not, you might say. But the Bible knows you better than you know you. And if you don't think that you are or were dead, uh, you're wrong. You were dead in your trespasses. This lines up with what Paul already reminded us of earlier in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, And you, and us, we, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, alienated from God, hostile in mind toward God, demonstrated by our actions, our evil deeds. This is the spiritual state of every human being from the womb. 
We are dead in our trespasses, our sins, our violations of God's moral standards. Spiritual life is walking with God, knowing God, living for his glory. That's spiritual life. Spiritual death is the opposite of that. Walking alone, apart from God, living for ourselves contrary to his glory, robbing him of the praise that he is due and withholding the thanks that he deserves. That is the opposite of what we were created for. That is spiritual death. This death speaks to our uselessness. We are morally unable to please God. Those who are in the flesh, those who are dead in their sins, cannot please God. It also speaks to our helplessness. There is nothing a dead person can do to help themselves. You were dead in your trespasses. You were distant in your uncircumcision. Physical circumcision was such an important external marker for the Jews that they called themselves the circumcision. And they referred to the Gentiles, all of them across the world, as the uncircumcised or the uncircumcision. Paul elaborates this on this in Ephesians 2. It's a sister letter to Colossians. Sometimes he focuses more on something in one than the other. Ephesians is two chapters longer, so normally he writes more to the Ephesians. But to the Ephesians in chapter 2, we read this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, there's a national physical separation for Gentiles, always had been, which only gets worse when we remember from last week that physical circumcision always had pointed to a universal human need for spiritual circumcision of the heart. I could rehash that, but that was last week, right? Physical circumcision pointed to that universal human need for our sinful hearts to be cut away, a new heart to be put in its place, spiritual circumcision. The Colossians were dead and distant in their uncircumcision. And the same is true for all hurricanians, hurricanites, I don't know. We were all, we, you, me, we were all utterly and hopelessly separated from God, awaiting our judgment and punishment. But God has made you alive together with Christ, in Christ, through faith. By trusting in Christ, his death on the cross becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. We aren't just made alive. We are made alive together with Christ. You're dead on your own. If you're alive, you're alive with Christ. Again, that union with Christ that we talked about last week. In the seemingly impossible physical resurrection of Christ, we see a picture of God's power to raise us from the dead spiritually. It's like so many times in the, in the gospel, some of my favorite stories are the accounts where Jesus says something spiritually that people scoff at. How could he say that? And then he backs it up with a physical miracle. 
right? The, the, I, I, my eyes uh, brushed over in Luke this morning as I was reading something else, uh, brushed over one of my favorite stories where they gouge out the space in the roof and they lower the paralyzed man right in front of Jesus. I can't go in through the door, so they go in through the roof. Awesome. Love it. And the first thing that he says to that man, do you remember? Your sins are forgiven. And they're all like, who has the, who could say that? Like, who on earth has the power to forgive sins? And Jesus is like, thanks for making my point so clearly so that you would know that the Son of Man has power, authority, the right to forgive sins on earth. He says to the man, get up, take up your bed, walk. And he does, right? So the physical miracle points us and and collaborates or um, verifies that invisible spiritual reality. Sometimes, you know, you see what that is? That's not what this sermon's about. Not even in my notes, but it's so great. And that's what happens in the resurrection of Jesus. Can God raise us from the dead spiritually? Yes. Well, how do you know that? Jesus. Jesus is not dead in that tomb. You don't need to be dead in your tomb and your trespasses anymore either. If you have trusted in Jesus, you have been given new life in him. If you have not trusted in Jesus, you can be given new life in him. You don't have to be dead in your trespasses, distant from God in that unchanged heart that you were born with. You do not need to be in slavery to that anymore. You can be free, forgiven, made new. Because of the cross, the dead are resurrected. Secondly, because of the cross, there is an unimaginable gift. The debtors are forgiven. An unimaginable gift. You were guilty of trespasses. Paul has already established this. But now he gives us another image of our sinfulness. There were records of your debt written against you. Last week, I tried to pay my yearly property taxes for our house. Yay, August, right? But I discovered I was not able to pay my taxes. Sounds good, but is a problem. So uh, I took a little digging to figure out why, but here's what had happened. The tax bill from last year was still in the previous owner's name because we closed on June 30th, and all that matters is who owns it on July 1st, and some of you are nodding your head. This has been refreshed to you very recently. If not, your tax bills do in the state of West Virginia, and you need to do something about that. Well, the tax bill from last year is still in the previous owner's name. It hadn't been transferred in that one day, but since we owned the house, we had to pay the tax bill. Uh, Since it was in his name, I didn't receive or I just didn't pay attention to the notice of the taxes that I owed. But that debt was still there, and it was unpaid. That nasty word, delinquent. I was delinquent in paying my property taxes. And since I was in debt with this tax bill, eventually... I would have been subject to the legal demands for failure to pay taxes, and a nice Putnam County sheriff would have shown up at the door and asked me for the money. (laughs) Eventually, I lean on the house, and who knows what those legal ramifications are, because debts do not just go away after time. It would be nice to think that, nice and very naive. 
that somebody, especially the, the state, the government's going to just forget that you owe them money? It does not work that way. They might forget they owe you money. But they don't forget that you owe them money. Debts don't just go away. They must be paid, and they must be paid in full, down to the last penny. Maybe that's why we all know that. If somebody owes you $100, you don't want 10 you don't want 50 you don't want $99.99. What do you want? You want $100, right? We all know that. We have that experience of that uh, if when we owe or if somebody owes us, maybe that's why Jesus introduces debt as an image of our sin. Entering into human experiences, using that as a picture, something that we all understand. When he says, forgive us our debts, as he taught us to pray, as we forgive our debtors. He's not talking about money. He's talking about sin. Let's try to translate our sin debt into numbers. Sin is a serious thing. We can't put a small price tag on it. Let's say we have to pay $100 per sin. If I only sinned 10 times per day, that would be a really good day. Only 10 times per day. At the end of each year, I will have committed 3,650 sins. I'll be 38 on my birthday in a couple of months, which means over the course of my lifetime, I will have committed 138,700 sins. If it's $100 per sin, that is an accumulated debt of $13,870,000, a sum that I will never be able to pay. I'd never be able to pay it also because I continue to sin each day. I'm not just, there's not just interest on my debt, but there's actually an increase of the debt itself. I also have no source of spiritual income to pay my debt. I mean, it could be $1,000, and if I don't have it, I'm in as much trouble as the one who own, owes a million dollars and can't pay it. So I'm in serious trouble, but the problem is actually far worse than that. I haven't only committed 10 sins per day. I'm guilty of far more. And the price of my sin isn't a measly $100. It's not $1,000. It's not even a million dollars per sin. There's no financial amount that we can put on that. The price that must be paid for each sin, each sin is death. Every single sin deserves death. So I would have to die 138,700 deaths in order to pay my debt. I only have one life to give. The situation is hopeless. You see that? My debt is unfathomable. My debt is unpayable. It is infinite. And you are in the same boat as me. Your debt is unmeasurable. It's unimaginable. It is unavoidable. Can you imagine in the records of heaven a handwritten note with your name and your debt on it? Peter Ambler, guilty of infinite debt, Deserving eternal punishment in hell. But that record is infinitely more specific than that. Peter Ambler lied to get out of trouble, disobeyed, disrespected, and dishonored his father and mother, snapped at his children in anger, ungratefully criticized his wife, 
took a second look in order to satisfy the lusts of his flesh, covetously loved money, selfishly hoarded his time, hated his enemies, idolatrously avoided dependence on Christ, wasted hours upon hours watching pointless YouTube videos instead of redeeming his time. He's ungrateful and unholy. He's worried and distracted. And the list goes on. And there's a similar list or record with your name on it and your sins known by a perfectly holy and all-knowing God. Nothing escapes his eye. Nothing escapes his judgment. If we could get that reality of this type of a note with that type of specificity, if we could let that reality sink into our hearts really and truly, then Paul's phrase in verse 14 should blow our minds and fill our hearts. God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Right? What a, what a vivid picture of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. You, a miserable, indebted beggar, holding the record of your debt in your hands, you appear before your king to beg for mercy, and he takes that wretched paper out of your hands, and he nails it to his own cross, dying for you to pay your debt. Because of his death on that cross, your debt is canceled. It is gone. It's forgiven. It's erased. It's paid in full. All of your sins are all the way forgiven because Christ has fully paid the price for all your sins with his precious blood shed on the cross. You can picture that, right? I mean, Jesus, those nails in his hands, the nails in his feet, and every, every pound of that is your death on the cross, your debt being paid, your death being died. Yes, you were guilty, but God has graciously forgiven all your trespasses. There's a few different words for for forgiven that we could talk about. A few different words. There always are throughout the New Testament, Old Testament. This word for forgiven is, is also used not just for the forgiveness of sins, but is used for that physical forgiveness of debt. There's no obligation for anyone who is owed something to forgive a debt, right? There's no obligation financially for that to take place. What is owed is for the money to be paid. And so that, in that story that Jesus told about the moneylender with two that could not pay their debt, canceling both of those, that was merely out of the kindness of his heart. And that type of kindness that leads to forgiveness, we call that grace. And it's just built into this word. Just extend undeserved goodness to you in canceling the debt that you owe me. That's what God offers. Amazing. Yes, you are desperately in debt, but God has paid your debts in full. God has paid those. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, paid your debt. Because of the cross, the debtors like us are forgiven. Have you been forgiven? can be because of the cross. Wow. And we, and we try to, like, come to church to pay that off. 
We're going to read our Bibles to pay off our debt. <laughs> what are you going to do to pay off that kind of a debt? What, what are you going to give to God that he doesn't already have? Oh, we're so, we're so dumb. I'm so dumb. <laughs> I'm going to preach sermons to pay my debt. They're not that good. <laughs> no, definitely not that good. Wow. No, the cross. Thirdly, because of the cross, there is a glorious triumph. The demons are defeated. This is verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The demons are defeated. Satan, his demons, took up arms against Christ through the Jews and the Romans. Those things were were satanically driven At the devil's instigation, Christ was plotted against, betrayed, falsely accused, beaten, scourged, mocked, stripped naked, and crucified. Consider the shame that Jesus endured in his crucifixion. The night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, Jesus was beaten by the temple guards after he was betrayed by his close friend. He was beaten by the temple guards before he was finally turned over to Pilate and his Roman soldiers. Matthew records that Pilate had Jesus scourged or or flogged and then delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him. They put a scarlet wound, a scarlet robe on him, excuse me, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as he was crucified, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders, his enemies, mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Who has known the humiliation and shame and loneliness that Christ knew on the cross? No one has ever been so innocent and yet treated as so guilty. Yet Jesus endured this, but he did not merely endure this shame. Jesus despised this shame. Despised it. This phrase comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where, where the author tells us we are we're running our race while we are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And what was that joy? The joy that was set before him was not just an end to his suffering, and it was not just returning to his Father in glory. The joy set before Christ was the prize of saving his people and having them with him. 
His exaltation, one author says, at the right hand of the throne of God, with all that it means for his people's well-being, not that he would be there by himself, but that he would be there with his bride. I just left his quote, but I'll come back to it. His exaltation, with all that it means for his people's well-being and for the triumph of God's purpose in the universe, is the joy set before him for the sake of which he submitted to shame and death. Jesus endured that shame on the cross, despising that shame, counting it as not shameful because of what he knew it was going to accomplish for love of his father and that love of his father flowing to his people. What he was accomplishing, he's not just like, I'm willing to go through it, but he's like, I actually endure this with joy, despising the shame. But behold the triumph of God at the cross. Jesus didn't just endure and he didn't just despise. Jesus reversed the shame of the cross. This is an incredible truth from this passage. It's echoed in Hebrews 2 verse 9. It says this, We see him, we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels in his, in his humanity, in that humility, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Do you see, in his, in his shame, Jesus was glorious. And we, I hope we see that echoed in our own lives. As we think back on the cross, we don't look at that with the same eyes that his mother Mary or Peter or John or James or any of those other women or men who were followers of Jesus. When they looked at their uh, scarred, bloody, bruised, beaten, naked teacher on that cross, all they saw was shame, humiliation, and defeat, right? But what do we think about when we look at the cross? Do you look at that as a shameful thing? Or do you look at that as the most beautiful thing that could have ever been done for you, right? In his shame, Christ was glorious. And in his defeat, Christ was victorious. Hebrews 2, 14, since we, his people, are flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, true humanity, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. By his glorious victory, Christ defeated and shamed his enemies, demonic and human. He didn't lose. And he wasn't shameful. He was glorious and victorious. If they had known who he was, and if they had known what the end would be, how could they ever have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul wrote in verse 15 that God disarmed the rulers and authorities. It's almost universally agreed that this is not just talking about Pilate or Caiaphas or Annas, but this is talking about the spiritual powers of darkness that are in play in the world that we have, right? The prince, the power, the darkness, right? The God of this world, lowercase g, and the rule that flows out from that. Paul, again, in Ephesians talks about that, right? The principalities, powers, authorities, these are demonic type things that are taking place. And here, he disarmed them. The snake's bite no longer has any venom for you. The lion hunting us has been muzzled and cannot devour us. The arrows of the evil one are blunted and his sword is dull. We cannot be harmed, truly harmed, eternally, spiritually harmed because of Christ's death on the cross 
in our place. By taking that on himself, the wrath of God, and under that really the wrath of of the devil, right? Not a ransom paid to Satan, right? But Satan just unleashing his hatred for God through people who were controlled by him, who had enslaved themselves to him through sin, right? Taking out his wrath and over that is the wrath of God falling on Christ. Because of what he bore, there's just, there's none of that left for us. But that's not all. He didn't just disarm them. He put them to open shame. This is also translated as he made a public spectacle of them. This is a great phrase, right? What did they do to Jesus? What were the Romans doing in every crucifixion? They were making a humiliating, excruciating out of the cross, excruciating example of every criminal. It's don't just take him into a private room and chop his head off. No, it's strip him in front of his friends and family and let him hang there and die for hours or days on end so that everyone will know Rome is victorious. That's the whole point of the crucifixion, making a public spectacle. Who is the spectacle in this text? The rulers and authorities. Satan and his demonic forces are the public spectacle. This is the clearest statement of the reversal of Christ's shame that we have in all of Scripture. His enemies made a public, humiliating spectacle of him in his crucifixion. At least that's what it looked like at the time. But now, looking back, because of his resurrection, we see what was really taking place. Christ heaped shame on his enemies in his glorious death. Just heaped shame on them. Movies made in the 1980s knew how to get their villains right. And they knew how to ensure that the villains got what was coming to them. Movies made in the whatever 20s, whatever we are now, right? All the villains from those movies are now the good guys. Or nobody's a good guy. Kind of more enjoyable as a story, a little bit less black and white, I admit, I kind of like that. But in the 80s, bad guys were bad, right? They wore black. Good guys were good, they wore white. Very obvious. And the villains got what was coming to them, right? In Back to the Future, the nerdy George McFly doesn't just rescue Lorraine and win her heart, he does it by knocking Biff Tannen out cold. And then Biff ends up with a mouthful of manure, It's great to watch every single time in every single movie. Always ends up with manure in his mouth. I mean, is there anything more shameful than that? Not only are you a loser now, but your mouth's full of manure. Scene never gets old. In Karate Kid, Daniel LaRusso doesn't just win the climactic fight against the bad guy, Johnny Lawrence. He knocks him on his back by kicking him in the face. I won't do the other part of that. It wouldn't look good. Do you see, the bad guys don't just lose in 80s movies. After repeatedly seeking to shame and harm the good guy, not just, won't leave him alone, they lose and are humiliated in the process. That's the level of defeat that Satan and his demons experienced at the cross. They didn't just lose. It was a spectacular, humiliating defeat. That's the victory that Jesus has on the cross. That's how it was glorious and victorious. God made a public spectacle of them, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ at the cross. 
The cross of Christ is God's moment of greatest triumph over Satan, over sin, and over death, right? It was at the cross that these things took place. What the ESV has is triumphing over them in him. It could actually be in it. It could be Christ. It could be the cross. Is there a difference? Because it's in Christ at the cross. God's greatest moment of triumph. So Paul says in Galatians, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And then he provides a contrast to the Corinthians. The word or the message of the cross is folly. It's shameful. It's defeat to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what is the cross to you? Is it shame and defeat? Or is it glory and victory? Because how we consider Christ on that cross and what we believe about what happened there, who he was, why it happened, and what followed, right? That is the proclamation of the truth of the gospel that makes every difference in your life and in eternity. So is it foolishness? Or is it wisdom? Is it weakness? Or is it strength? What about us? Do we glory in the cross as we share in Christ's victory? Do we believe that the message of the cross is the power of God to save sinners? Jesus said to Simon, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and kissed them and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. How greatly do you love Jesus? Perhaps like me, you find that far too often, far too many days, your love for Jesus has grown faint or cold, content to just move through life without the wonder of what happened on the cross. To renew and refresh that love, we can consider his work on the cross on our behalf. Because of the cross, the dead are resurrected. Because of the cross, the debtors are forgiven. Because of the cross, the demons are defeated. To grow in our love, we can think about how much we have been forgiven. So have you been forgiven little or have you been forgiven much? May the Holy Spirit open our eyes to see how much 
we have been forgiven, that our love for Christ may grow. Loving him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, and you sent Christ in that love for us, and he would endure the shame on the cross and despise the shame on the cross and he would reverse the shame of that cross. Thank you for the cross. Please teach me, all of us, we have been forgiven much so we would love you much. Thank you that you first loved us. Amen.